0: Hey, pretty good. You have a beard.
1: I do. I've been meaning That's to shave a- it for a while. I just I getting busy. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Ruby Dev Summit coming October 16th through 23rd, 2017. Hi, it's Chuck from devchat.tv. I reached out to some of my friends in the Ruby community to put on a completely free, no travel conference for Ruby developers. We have speakers like Uncle Bob Martin, Fabio Akita, and others covering topics from clean architecture to artificial intelligence and machine learning. The talks are happening throughout the day each day, and we'll have a chat available during each session. Attending the talks is free, but you need to register. Go to rubydevsummit.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My Ruby Story. This week, we are talking to Dave Thomas. Dave, do you want to say hi? Hi. How you doing, everyone? Now... I've talked to you several times over the years on various shows. I think the first time I interviewed you was on the Rails Coach podcast. That was a long time ago.
0: Oh, my word. This is that such, I don't well, that was like way, way past my event horizon now. So, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nothing to do with you. I just have this incredibly Civ-like memory. So, uh, yeah, I, can't, I, I remember doing like some rogues with you, and uh-huh. we, we did another something or other. But I call I can't remember. I really it's it's bad. I mean, I can't remember last week, never mind 2 years ago, so 5 yeah. years ago, or whatever it was.
1: Yeah, I think I've had you speak at two Ruby Remote Confs and both times you spoke about Elixir.
0: So, uh, yeah, well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, it's interesting and I I think it challenges the way people think about the way they do code. I think it's healthy for people to go out and experience things that are a little bit outside of their wheelhouse. So,
0: and if it's any consolation, I got thrown off the No, t- no Fluff tour for, uh, it's a Java conference, and I got thrown off for talking about nothing but Ruby. So, I mean, it oh, you know, really? comes around. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, it was, uh, and the same kind of thing. I mean, basically, I'm just like a subversive, you know, so I, I have to go out and do these things. Well,
1: I'll think of you as a subversive from now on.
0: There you go. See, I'm I'm an English subversive, which means that you don't notice it.
1: Uh, I was going to say, does that make it better or worse?
0: (laughs) It just makes it sneakier.
1: Oh, okay. (laughs) Now, I'm I'm curious, you know, we we ask these questions, and, and I really am curious what your story is as far as how you got into programming in the first place.
0: Oh, so this is, it's a story I tell a fair amount, and it changes every time I tell it, so... You know, just view this as being an issue with my memory and not lying through my back teeth. But <laughs> So I was at school in England and um, at 15 or 16, actually probably 16 and 18, uh, everybody takes um, some uh, national tests. And these are called the O-levels and the A-levels. Now it's all changed now, but back, in, back when I was doing it it was O-levels and A-levels. And so uh, the idea was that the O-levels were kind of like Uh, broad and kind of level setting. And then after you take them, you tend to specialize in uh, a small number of subjects and go for the A-levels, and those were used for university admission. So um, a group of us were going through, we'd taken our O-levels, and we were studying for A-levels, and we decided to take um, a few of them a year early just to get them out of the way. So rather than taking two years, we took one year to do a bunch of them. And that kind of threw the school for a bit of a loop because they didn't have anything to do with us uh, at the end of that um, spring term. So uh, they looked around something that would stop us basically just like you know, vandalizing the school. And they discovered the local technical college across the road was trialing uh, the very first computer science or I can't remember what they called it. What was it? It was an A-level. And they said, well, do you want to go across and be a guinea pig? Because the school was basically looking, the, the technical college was looking for um, people to try this thing out. So a group of us said, absolutely, sure. And we went across there. And um, I think it was in like two or three weeks we spent doing it. And uh, I learned basic. And I was typing it into a ASR 33 teletype with a paper tape punch. And sending it over 110 board modem up to our local county council mainframe. And despite all that, I absolutely fell in love. So I decided to change my, uh, I was heading to go do math uh, at college, and I announced to my parents, nope, I'm gonna go do computer stuff, and I did. So the next year, I finished off that A-level, and I applied and got into Imperial College, uh, which was, at least back then, it was a very new thing for them to be teaching computing. I think I was in the second year and absolutely enjoyed every minute of it because you know, it was brand new for everybody, so everyone was like experimenting and making mistakes, and so I fit, I fit in perfectly in that kind of environment. So basically, it was just one of those things where I kind of like fell in love pretty early on, and I just basically managed to, to sustain that for the next 40-something years.
1: Very cool. Now, one of the things that you are pretty well known for is the Pickaxe book. Yeah, in Ruby. And so I'd like to dive into that. How did you find Ruby? How did you get into Ruby?
0: So um, I've always been a language nut, nerd, boring person at parties, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) And so back then in the uh, 90s, uh, languages were being worked on quite a lot, but you had to be uh, pretty uh, determined to play with them because people would post their compilers or whatever onto Usenet, uh, which was kind of like a bulletin board system back then. And Usenet had a limit. I can't remember what it was, but it was like, I don't know, <clears throat> so many thousand lines or so many K or something of each message. So if someone wanted to post a, a, a new compiler up there, they would have to split it into many, many parts. And then you encode every part and then post it as a series of messages up to Usenet. And then people who wanted to play with the language would do the opposite. They would download the you know, 107 messages and then concatenate them together, and then you decode it, and you'd end up with a tar file that you could then play with. And so I was downloading and playing with these probably one every couple of days. There was a whole bunch of, I guess they'd be the equivalent of newsgroups, whatever. Uh, so there was something called Misc. Uh, which was like for the weird experimental languages. And I used to download, like I said, you know, from there very, very regularly. And after a while, a typical language, uh, you'd download it. And at that time, it could take like three or four hours. Uh, so typically, you download overnight. and The next morning, you'd come in, and you'd play with it or even just read the documentation. And then you know, after maybe half an hour, you'd just throw it away and say, no, nah, not really anything for me. And I had uh, done that to Ruby in 97, I guess, maybe 98. And I downloaded it overnight, and I started playing with it the next morning. And it had almost no documentation. Uh, there, was, uh, there was some uh, library documentation in English, but everything else was in Japanese. And I was playing with it, and I kind of fell in love. You know, it was kind of weird. I was... I a fair amount of Perl at that time Mm -hmm. um, for, like, my own purposes. And Ruby was sufficiently similar to Perl that I could say, oh, I can see how I can apply this. But at the same time, it had decent OO and, you know, obviously was well thought out. Um, So around about lunchtime, I called up Andy Hunt and said, hey, you know what? I'm playing with this. You should try it too. So being the long-suffering person that he is, he downloaded a copy and um, started playing with it. I was still playing with it like, you know, sort of eight o'clock that night and it became like my main language then. Um, so at the time I was doing it mostly like small scripting things in it, CGI scripts and just general kind of maintenance kind of things. And what I noticed was that with my Perl programming, uh, the code would quite quickly become really hard to maintain. Um, whereas with the Ruby program, it would grow and grow and yet still be easy to work with. Um, and so it became more and more my, my kind of language of choice. Um, and then Andy and I, after we finished the Pragmatic Programmer, we got it into our heads that we wanted to write a book about, um, well, at the time, we kind of called it like... Kind of self-descriptive or something like that. Programming, mm-hmm. but the idea would be that you would actually kind of write the specification for the program in programming language, and uh, you know, by the time you'd finish doing that, you'd actually have finished coding. And Ruby was the absolute ideal language for that because it had that great metaprogramming support. Mm-hmm. And so we started writing the book using Ruby, and we found ourselves spending more time explaining to people what the ruby was doing as opposed to what we were trying to do you know so i decided to write like a really short um, you know html introduction to ruby so we wouldn't have to keep going on about it in this book and we kind of like canceled well the canceled but we kind of got got a bit bored with the book idea but um, i carried on doing the ruby stuff and that basically just turned into a book, and that book became the pickaxe. So I went from being like, you know, sort of a couple of pages on a website to being, you know, 500 pages of paper, which is typical for a programmer, I guess.
1: <laughs>
0: Although it's interesting, the, the book that we were writing, had we finished it, it would have been effectively kind of like BDD, but without all the bulk. <laughs> Yeah, because that's what the B in BDBG stands for. You know that, don't you? Uh-huh, uh, yep. <laughs> yeah. But it's it would be like... It would be the idea of metaprogramming yourself up to a level where you could express things in a, a language that um, your users could... If not, they couldn't write it. At least they could understand it. And so you'd write that, and then you'd throw a switch, and then rather than metaprogramming it to be illustrative, you'd in fact metaprogram it to be the actual program itself. Mm-hmm. So that was the idea we had, but never quite saw the light of day. Um, but Ruby did, and so we wrote the book, and let's think, pretty soon after that, it got published by Addison Wesley, and Chad Fowler and David Black, I think, were the people who kind of contacted me and said, hey, we should have a conference. So, we all got together in Florida and had the very first Ruby conference. And Mats was kind enough to fly over. And it was funny that one conference, I think there was thirty to forty people there. Um, you know the whole conference fit in the bar when it wanted to um, was actually really it set the tone for the next five years of Ruby conference of being absolutely collegial and you know, anything goes in terms of like ideas. Everyone was very polite. Uh, everyone was an individual and we were all just enjoying stuff, you know? So I was really privileged to be involved in that from the start.
1: Yeah. It's pretty amazing just how far things have come. I mean, I came into Ruby much later than that and, uh, yeah, I can just imagine, you know, the small group of all of you getting together and, and I know several of those people, you know, I know Chad and David and David Hanson and, you know, a lot of these other folks. And so, yeah, I kind of just imagine you all getting together in a small room and just talking about Ruby.
0: Yeah. In fact, mostly it was it was programming, you know. So and because in a way it was a newer it was a newer experience. I mean, Ruby itself had been around for probably eight years by then. Mm -hmm. Um, But it really hadn't been explored that thoroughly because there weren't that many people playing with it so a lot of those times were spent with people just like sitting over laptops saying did you know you could do this or hey what happens if we do that you know and so it was very much a kind of collaborative almost like a jam session you know and that feeling really did stay on i mean i remember the first few ruby conferences going to talks and about half of them would be kind of like uh, aimed at beginners and the other half would be, I found this really cool thing you can do, you know. And those talks were just like, you know, breath of fresh air.
1: Do you feel like we get as many of those talks these days in Ruby?
0: Certainly not in terms of percentage, no. And that's kind of to be expected because, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're past the, you know, sort of getting in the wagons and heading out west phase. Right. And we're, in, we're into the kind of like, I wonder if we should put a drugstore on every corner phase. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so as a result, the problems have changed, the people have changed, um, the interest has changed. There are still occasional things that are really, really cool. Um, But in Ruby, it's kind of matured to the point where just statistically, they're fewer than they used to be. Right. Um, And One of the other things that's happened um, in the, I think in every community, is that after a, wet, after a certain period of time, um, there gets to be a group of people who are kind of like the semi-official keepers of the flame. Uh-huh. And they tend to say, this is how we do things and this is how we don't do things, which is kind of fair enough. But that kind of idea, to my mind, kind of stifles innovation a bit. Um, and so I think that's another reason it tends to get a little bit boring. And like I said, I think every language goes through that exact same thing.
1: Right. So in terms of this cycle that you're seeing, then where, where would you put Elixir? Cause I know that you've done a lot of work there.
0: Yeah. So Elixir is kind of interesting because it is brand new. I mean, it's not, um, whereas Ruby had been around a long time and then suddenly kind of burst out. Well, actually it burst out twice. Um, but uh, Elixir really is brand new, and I am blown away at how fast it is catching on. So it's gone from being a a, a decent viable prototype to being, you know, people are doing serious, large-scale commercial work in it in 18 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is, that is absolutely scary. There is elements of um, homesteading going on, um, uh, a lot of people are coming into Elixir from Ruby and are delighting in telling you know, us old hands that have been doing it for two years that this is how you should be doing it. Um, but by <laughs> and large, right now at least, they're being ignored and the um, there's a lot of really exciting things happening. Um, and part of my interest in this, part of my joy in this, is that I've kind of been through a few of these cycles in the past, um, and I can kind of recognize things that are potentially dangerous is too too strong a word, but uh, things that will dampen down uh, the community. And so I can kind of like do my little English subversive act and try to stop some of those things happening or at least mitigate the impact of those things. So, for example, I'm sure you've heard of the Phoenix web mm-hmm. framework. Yep. Which was people rapidly decided that this was a competitor to rails and so they would look at things side by side and say well basically you take a rails you know time to process a request divided by a thousand and there's your phoenix requ- time to so therefore phoenix must be better and all this kind of stuff and it they kind of missed the point and i think uh in terms of uh the community there it's kind of interesting because i think chris mccord also was kind of like taken because he came from the rails core Mm -hmm. and i think he was kind of like taken with how easy it was to do things better in elixir and maybe kind of like focused a bit too much on that i think he would sell you that because i mean we've had that conversation um and so, you know, there are things that are a bit too kind of like, hey, I want to be like Rails in Phoenix. The real thing about Phoenix is that it's not Rails. Uh, the real thing about Phoenix, and the thing that really excites me about Phoenix, is that all it really is, is a configurable switch. And it takes traffic in from potentially any source, but currently HTTP and a few others. And it will take it through a variety of pipelines to... Uh, convert that traffic into something else and potentially pass it on to a series of applications along the way before spitting out something, not necessarily a response directly back to the original person. But doing all of that in a very controlled, very configured and very reliable way. And I have been saying for for 10 years now that the browser is dead. And the nice thing about that is if I keep saying it, one day I'll be right. And then I, say, but I was saying that 10 years ago. But, I mean, I really do think the browser is slowly dying. And we're seeing more and more, um, you know, sort of little small apps. And also more exciting, I think, we're seeing more integrations with bits of hardware and cars and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And in that kind of IoT world, Phoenix will excel. Uh, it's absolutely stunning. And that's what really excites me about that. Another project that does the same thing is a project called Nerves. N-E-R-V-E-S, and nerves is a way of writing Elixir code and then having it run on some of the larger embedded devices. Basically, if it runs Linux, uh, like a Raspberry Pi or mm-hmm. BeagleBone Black or something like that, then nerves will run on it. And the coolest thing about that is that the same code that you write on the server runs unmodified on a small embedded device. And you can choose where you wanna put the boundaries and you can switch it back and forth as you get more experience with the device. And you get all of the nice Elixir features like live code reuse, uh, live code reloading and you know, really good monitoring and all this kind of stuff on a Raspberry Pi. And what's more, a typical Raspberry Pi image is in the order of what, maybe one and a half gig. A typical Nerves image that runs on a Raspberry Pi on a raw Raspberry Pi is about 16 to 20 meg. Oh, wow. So the thing, oh, unbelievable. Because what it does is it basically, uh, every time you generate your project, it goes in and picks and chooses the bits of Linux it needs, and it constructs a dynamic kernel that runs your app and will only run your app pretty much and then downloads that into your your Pi. And you got hot code reloading as well. So you can, it runs two partitions and if you download, it will switch to the other partition. And if it fails, it'll boot back into the original. So you're not going to brick your light switch if you accidentally get some code wrong. So those two things, to me, are what is making Elixir exciting at the moment, because I think that's the future. I really do think the future is is going to be a move away from I am interacting with a computer to a computer has to be part of my life. like for example, most cars, most modern cars, are effectively drive-by-wire. So there's no physical connection between, say, the brake pedal and the brakes, or the steering wheel and the steering. Uh-huh. But instead, you're talking to servos and all this kind of stuff. And people don't notice that. There's nobody complaining. You know that you know I don't I don't you know necessarily have this this direct connection anymore. And that's the way it should be. And computers will become more and more. Just a part of things, and less and less invasive. You know, you're not going to be sitting there manually saying, "I want to talk to a browser" or "I want to talk to a computer."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think Phoenix and uh, Nerves and Elixir are all really well placed in that kind of playground.
1: Very cool. How did you discover Elixir?
0: I came across it twice. I came across it first when, oh, five years ago, maybe four. I can't remember. It was a while back. I may have got this wrong, but my understanding was he was trying to see if he could put something kind of Ruby-like on top of the Erlang virtual machine. And I looked at that, and it was kind of okay, but in my mind, it was kind of, what's the point, you know? Uh And so I I looked at it and thought, hey, that's that's really cool he can do that, you know, but um, it's not something that really turns me on. And then about a year, maybe two years later, Corey Haynes and I were giving a Ruby course or a Rails course in Virginia. And they're like three or four day courses. And so you get into this kind of routine where you meet for breakfast and you know plan the day ahead. And so we we sat down for breakfast. And I was bemoaning the fact that I had been looking for a, a functional language that didn't have a whole bunch of baggage so that... I could help people see what I thought were the really great benefits of functional programming. And he said, well, have you had a look at that Elixir? And he helped me dredge out of my memory that I had already had a look at Elixir. And he said, no, no, you wanna go have a look at it again because it's changed. So that night uh, I went back to the room and downloaded Elixir and he was absolutely right. And I was still playing it well into those small hours. Um, so I apologized to the class the next day for. probably falling asleep on them a couple of times. But yeah, I I got really hooked. Um, It wasn't like Ruby in that I fell in love with the language directly. What I fell in love with with Elixir was the potential because Jose had made a language which wasn't opinionated particularly apart from it wanted to be as transparent as possible when it came to the goodness of the Erlang virtual machine. And although initially I was like, I'm not sure that's a good idea, the more I play with it, the more I realize that that is a really profound decision because that machine has been around since, what, 86, I guess, and it has been battle-tested and it has been refined and tuned to the point where it is unbelievably fast and unbelievably reliable. So it was a really good decision to make. You have a nice not quite as pure functional language as say Elm, but Mm -hmm. it's functional enough that you can actually get the benefits of functional programming. And you can write rock solid production code out of the gate. So it, it, it was a different kind of love, but you know, the world's a big place and I'm sure it can take for that.
1: Makes sense. Yeah, it's definitely something that I've been wanting to spend a little bit more time with myself. I mean, I've installed it on some machines and done some things with it, but I've just, you know, I, I've been busy doing all this other stuff with the podcasts and things, and I just don't have as sure. much time to code as I'd like, but it is definitely a fun language to play with. I've also had a lot of people asking me to pull together an Elixir podcast similar to Ruby Rogues, and so I've been looking into that and seeing what people
0: think about that. So, um, I, I, well, Okay, so I ended up going to a bunch of regional Ruby conferences last uh, year. And you know what those things are like. I mean, you 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 meet up with people that you see like once every two years or a year, and it's like, uh-huh. you know, there's no time has passed in between. So it's, it's a really great opportunity to like chat with people and see what's going on. I was blown away. This was Ruby conferences. Everybody I talked to who I have respected in the past for the things they've done is either switched to Elixir or playing with Elixir. Mm. And... I was doing Elixir talks in Ruby conferences, and I got no pushback at all. I got a whole bunch of "Wow, that's really cool!" Whatever else, you know. So I think that, based on that, um, I came back and I um, started working on a course, which was um, Elixir for Ruby programmers. Mm-hmm. And then I, su- I suddenly realized that it actually doesn't have to be for Ruby programmers. So now it's Elixir for programmers. And I think you, you know, on the basis of the, of the interest I see for that. Um, I think you'd be well, well, so, so, start again. I think, based on the interest that I've seen in that course, I think doing a uh, the equivalent of Ruby Rogues for Elixir uh, would be rewarding. Mm-hmm. And also, it would be kind of like being back at the start again, you know. So you'd have all of these cool origin stories, and uh-huh. everybody's enthusiastic about their cool new project, you know. So it's it's a high energy.
1: That that makes sense. And, you know, I mean, we're we're off on a tangent already, but that was a lot of what I really enjoyed about Ruby Rogues initially when we started. It was that we were we were talking to people. Sure. Some of them had been doing Ruby and doing what they do in Ruby for a few years. But, you know, it was still early enough to where, yeah, it was almost more an exploration of Ruby as opposed to talking about what's currently going on in a mature platform area. Though we did get some of that, too. It just has become more, much, much more that way in the Ruby space now.
0: Right, which is fantastic. You know, yes. I, I don't take anything away from that.
1: Yeah, but, but it's more fun to talk about the new, interesting, cool, off-the-wall thing that somebody did with it.
0: Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And I think also, think about Ruby in, what, 2005-ish, beginning of 2005? Mm-hmm. And the kind of things that people are talking about, and you know, people were probably starting to say, "Yeah, you know, this is getting a little bit old, a little bit stale, right?" And then this, this this Danish guy comes along, and you know, suddenly kicks it in the teeth, and you know, it's it becomes exciting again. You know, so you can never tell. Yep. But um, you know, I think right now we're we are in the first phase of that with Elixir, and we're kind of waiting for our. Um, our own Danish guy to come along and and do something miraculous with it too. Mm -hmm. But for for now, I'm very happy just to see it, you know, developing the way it is.
1: Yep. Interesting. So the next section of the show that I usually do, we talk about contributions to the community. And you've talked about the pickaxe already, but it seems like the contributions that you have made to the community go well beyond that, where, I mean, I, I can't remember... How many uh, of your conference talks I've heard you know going to Ruby conferences or um, pragmatic programmer as a whole and just all of the resources that you know you and Andy and your team over there have put out do you want to talk a little bit about how that all came about with pragmatic programmer and and, and the things that you've done there
0: So I think there was a confluence of a couple of things that were, were useful so we finished the book Pragmatic Programmer And we'd started on this other book. And then I got this bee in my bonnet about Ruby. And so switched across to writing the first pickaxe. And the first pickaxe came out just before the manifesto meeting in Snowbird. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, on the bus from the airport, there's not that many shuttles that go up to Snowbird from Salt Lake City. And we were on the shuttle and... We just got chatting with this guy, and it was Brian Merrick, and uh, <laughs> so I got talking to him about um, you know various bits of software. And on that bus ride, he said that uh, I converted him to Ruby. But there was a whole bunch of people in that meeting that had interest, you know, in Ruby. And I think part of the character of Ruby going forward was because of the influence of some of those people um, and me. But uh, for example, the uh, emphasis on testing probably was not necessarily caused by that meeting but because uh, there was a good strong testing emphasis before that. But I think it was reinforced strongly by the people in that meeting. And at the same time, I was doing a whole bunch of talking uh, at these No Fluff, Just Stuff conferences. And so if you're not familiar with those, these are these uh, – it's basically a traveling medicine show that travels around the U.S., It does, on average, a conference every two weeks in a different location Mm -hmm. uh, every two weeks. And so I got onto the um, speaker circuit with that. And so um, I would spend, there were years where I spent well over half my weekends away um, talking at those things. And although I started off doing all the boring testing is good talks, I very quickly realized I had the opportunity here to try and make a difference in terms of the way I thought things should go. So I started evangelizing Ruby and then later on rails. Um, and so I probably talked to, I don't know, tens of thousands of people over those years about Ruby. And to some extent, that's one of the things I'm most proud of is that, you know, I, I tried really hard not to say my language is better than your language, but at the same time, I tried to just show people areas where, you know, this is really cool and if you don't need you know certain features of Java, then you know this is this is a good alternative. And I really enjoyed that, but I think also it sort of like kicked a whole bunch of people off into that kind of thing. At the same time, as Ruby started to take off, um, I was looking around basically, and initially just hit up you know people I knew, people who were friends, so people like Mike Clark, mm-hmm. and you know we basically just like dragged dragooned people into uh, writing books on Ruby. And after a while, we became like, the place to go to for that. And so, you know, authors started coming to us rather than the other way around. Uh, and I was really, really proud to do that because I think, you know, it actually helped spread a new way of thinking about programming. And, you know, all power to Matts for, for coming up with a language that helped that many people do that. But now there are probably literally millions of people out there programming in Ruby. And I think their lives are happier for it. So I think if I had one kind of conscious thing that I was trying to do, it was to try to do a little bit of evangelism just to try and make life a bit happier for developers. And that's the same kind of thing I'm doing with Elixir now, because Ruby, I still love Ruby and I still do Ruby coding. But there are things that Elixir, I don't know about, yeah, maybe it is, things that Elixir are better at and things that I'm beginning to value that maybe I didn't value before. Mm -hmm. And so I've got the same kind of mission now to go out there and show people how to write Elixir code. And the interesting thing about that is that my my Elixir style is very much not an official Elixir style. So I'm constantly getting into these kind of like uh, quiet, uh, not argument is too strong a word, but, you know, well, Dave, do you really think you want to do it that way? Kind of um, discussions <laughs> with know elixir core team members and i mean i'm probably wrong but i just feel that this is a really great way to write code for example okay so my reading example for the last two years now has been writing the hangman game Mm -hmm. um and so the first couple of times i did that it was pretty much as you would expect it would be the same way you'd write say a rails web hangman game, right? So you'd do Rails new and then you would, you know, sit there and you'd populate the models and the controllers and the views and then you'd end up with a hangman game. And I did the same kind of thing in Phoenix. And then I went to teach it at Southern Methodist University here in, um, in Dallas. They made the mistake of letting me teach a class down there. <laughs> and I wanted to teach it the other way around. So I started off by not doing the Phoenix stuff but by doing the internals. So we'd actually wrote a dictionary server and then a Hangman server and we plumbed them together. And I came to realize that there's absolutely no reason at all to have any of the application code in the web server. And so I've been pushing really, really hard to get out of this Rails mindset of, you know, it's all one big thing into how many small pieces can I break this into and still make it manageable. And I'm having a blast teaching that because Elixir makes that really, really easy to do. And um, it's a brand new way of programming for me. I'm sure people have been doing it for years. But, you know, I have the the zeal of the newcomer, even if it's not that new. And um, that's my kind of current uh, evangelizing is to write. I mean, the dictionary code is probably four or five lines of actual code. And yet that is its own freestanding, supervised, separate virtual machine server. And it's just so joyful to work that way because it's like OO programming done right. Each server is effectively an object. And it has a well-defined interface. It has totally private state. And it's just encapsulated, decoupled. It's wonderful, you know. And so that's what I'm trying to – that's the change that I'm trying to, to push right now. Is mm-hmm. to move from a, a big ball of mud into lots of grains of sand.
1: Well, you've uh, you've kind of captured that last question that I usually ask, and that's what you're working on now. So yeah, it it sounds like a lot of this uh, movement and you know just empowering people to write code the way that they're going to write it.
0: Yeah, I mean my current my current thing is to contr- is to corrupt. A larger number of people. So I've written this <laughs> this uh, this course, which is purportedly, you know, how to learn elixir, but what it really is, it's how to learn elixir Dave Thomas style. You know, um, so we'll see how that goes. But maybe I'll have this whole bunch of secret converts that don't even know they're secret converts, and I'll send them out on the world, and everything will change.
1: <laughs> nice. All right. Well, we usually wrap this show up with some picks. Have you ever felt like you're falling behind? Or that the programming world is moving so fast that it's impossible to keep up? Then there's the issue of where to go to make sure you're up to date. The answer is to join a community dedicated to discussing the latest in Ruby. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if you got Ruby Rogues all day? Well, you can, kind of. We moved our Ruby Rogues Parlay forum to Slack. That means you can connect with our listeners and guests on a platform you're most likely already using. Plus, we've set up a Keeping Current channel that pulls stories from across the web to help you know what people are talking about. And coming soon, we'll be holding monthly webinars and roundtable video chats to connect with experts in the community and with each other. So come join us at rubyrogues.com slash parlay. That's rubyrogues.com slash P-A-R-L-E-Y. Do you have some things you want to shout out about as part of the show?
0: Well, yes and no. Because you know, I know you do this, and you and I'm always like totally unprepared because you always tell me, oh, we're going to ask you three things, and I'm going to be like, oh, sure, sure, and then you know, I sit there gibbering like a fool. (laughs) And I was looking, I was looking around for picks, the on you know that might be relevant. And uh, instead of doing that, I would like to do something slightly different, and that is, um, I want people to do their own picks, but here are the rules, right? I want you to look at things which are, I want everybody listening to think of three things that are just mind-numbingly fantastic. Things that, you know, you never thought we'd be able to do. Like, take a picture of Pluto with the sun in the background, right? That is just like the kind of things that give you a chill to think, my God, mankind did that, right? Think of three things like that. And then, when you look around at the world and you think, you know, this is a pilot, stop and say, well, actually, no. Because in the midst of all this, we are still doing these spectacular things. We have eliminated so many diseases. We've visited places that we have no business visiting. You know, we are making life better. And, you know, we are really, really bad at the short term. But I think long term, we're doing some fantastic things. So my three picks would be, whatever makes you proud to be a human being.
1: Awesome. I, I have nothing to add, that's awesome. Well, Dave, if people wanna follow you on Twitter or GitHub or kinda see the things that you're doing these days, uh, what, what's the best resource for that?
0: So I'll, I'm my kind of universal handle is pragdave, P-R-A-G-D-A-V-E. My site is pragdave.me and I'm doing my kind of newer work under the, uh, handle Coding Gnome, that G-N-O-M-E, and I'm not 100%, oh, I know why, yeah, that's actually um, thanks to the Affordable Care Act, but that's another story which we can get into some other time, but yeah, and so you'll come across stuff that I'm doing also called Coding Gnome, so for example, this Elixir course is um, under Coding Gnome, so anyway, yeah, so that's how you find me, or at a whole bunch of conferences.
1: All right. Well, thank you for coming, Dave.
0: Hey, my pleasure. I really always, always enjoy chatting.
1: Yep, me too. All right. Well, we'll wrap this one up and we will catch you all next week with another story. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.